Welcome to Body Matters Podcast, where we bring to you raw and inspiring content on all things to do with body positivity and eating disorder recovery. But before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as traditional people and traditional owners of this country. We acknowledge with gratitude First Nations communities for their continuing care and connection to the lands or waters with which they have protected for thousands of years. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and recognise that First Nations sovereignty was never ceded. Welcome back to the podcast, Harriet. Thanks for having me. So what about we start off by maybe talking about some self-care that you've done over the past week? So self-care this week has looked like having a massage as well as putting on a few face masks, which has been really soothing for my skin and it's helped me to feel more connected um, to my body. So it's a great way to enhance the relationship you have with your body through those acts of of self-care. Yes. So on the topic of today, we're going to be speaking about young children and eating disorders. So why are kids so impressionable to taking on certain beliefs? So children enter into the world surrounded by new things and they learn about these new things in their world, at least for the most part, through their caregivers. And the way that their caregiver interacts with the world and sees their world will often influence how the child sees themselves and their world too. And this in turn often leads the child to develop beliefs about themselves, about others, about their world and their future, which can be helpful as well as potentially harmful. So in summary, children often form beliefs which have been informed by parental modelling and parental guidance. Hmm. So then how can the language we use around food, such as calling it good or bad, negatively impact children's relationship with food? Okay, so firstly, I am aware that there are foods that are more nutritious than other foods. Um, societal discourses and yeah, the world we live in make that, that quite clear to us. However, it's also important that children are aware that every food can be enjoyed and has a place in uh, meal plans and eating regimes. When parents are responsible for, say, refeeding their child who is, say, suffering from anorexia nervosa, it's the high-energy foods that really, really bring their child to health and help with that weight restoration process. So when parents characterise foods as good or bad, nice or evil, healthy or unhealthy, it can lead children over time to adopt similar language when describing food and food groups. And consequently, these children may then avoid and or fear certain foods that they deem to be unhealthy or develop an over-reliance on other foods that they deem to be healthy. So they end up consuming a lot of one specific food or food group. As well as this, their preoccupation with food can also grow stronger, which takes the focus away from other areas of their life, such as 
such as their academic performance, their occupational performance, their relationships and leisure activities that they engage in for fun. And this preoccupation coupled with emotions around food can also foster the development of maladaptive, strict, rigid rules about how much um, the child thinks that they can eat, when they can eat, what they can eat. Um, and in clinical practice, we often find that a child's eating disorder was actually prompted, was prompted by a multitude of factors, but one of them can be the language that their caregivers is used around food and the way that their caregivers described and interacted with their body. And then that child sort of internalises that and adopts that. So given this, I do encourage parents to think about the language that they use around food and their body because, as I said before, children often internalise this language, which can yeah, trigger the development of maladaptive beliefs and cognitions, assumptions and behaviours around food, exercise and body. And it may not even be based in evidence, the ideas around foods and the rules. Definitely. It's usually based in, you know, different societal discourses that may not actually be fully accurate. Mm. So then how can you address negative eating disorder thoughts if they are brought up by children? This is a complex question um, and each professional may have a slightly different approach. So I'll answer this question from the perspective of saying, you know, what a parent should do as well as what a professional would do. So eating disorder thoughts, they often sound like that food is bad. I have to restrict the amount I eat when I eat or I hate my body. I should also note that even if your child communicates these thoughts, it does not necessarily mean that they have an eating disorder, although they are likely to be at risk of developing one. So as a parent, I would unpack these thoughts further with your child and determine whether these thoughts are actually influencing your child's behaviours. So, for example, if that child states that a certain food is bad, asking them, are they restricting that food and other foods? And is the degree of restriction facilitating weight loss? And after these conversations, if there is still concern, taking a child to seek the support of a medical and mental health professional. As a therapist, if that child came to me for support and reported those thoughts, I'd first try to understand where those thoughts are coming from. So in other words, what are the assumptions and core beliefs that are underlying the thoughts? And through cognitive reframing and restructuring, therapists would teach the child how to examine the evidence for and the evidence against those thoughts, how to challenge those thoughts, how to find more suitable, more realistic thoughts that reflect a more balanced, adaptive way of thinking. And then we may look at experiments that would be used to test out the healthier ways of thinking and believing. And that that could look like if that child uh, thinks that ice cream will make them put on weight, the therapist and child may then set up, an, set up an experiment where the child does eat ice cream and the way the child pre and post the ice cream consumption to test out a... Um, the belief's validity. So that would be like a negative belief and we're getting evidence to kind of 
challenge that belief, but then also testing out whether new beliefs that, you know, ice cream doesn't, doesn't make you put on weight. Um, we're also testing out those beliefs and trying to get evidence sort of for those, those beliefs. If that child came to me and they were underweight and not getting adequate nutrition, it is most likely that they would be having eating and body image thoughts come up extremely frequently because being malnourished is often coupled with this preoccupation with weight, shape and food. So in these instances, we'd actually generally prioritise the weight restoration before addressing the thoughts. So the first step would actually involve a more behavioural approach, working with the parents and the child to ensure the child has adequate nutritional intake. And then with weight restoration, we'd often see negative food and body image thoughts subside or at least reduce in intensity and frequency. And so then if these thoughts are still persisting, once weight is restored, then we would guide the child through the cognitive reframing and restructuring exercises as described above, as well as other emotional regulation strategies um, with the hope of reducing the frequency and intensity of these negative thoughts. That's a lot of info. <laughs> yes, all, all good, all good. <laughs> then how can you teach kids that food is safe and an important part in fueling our bodies? To achieve this, parents must continuously communicate to children that food is fuel for their bodies. It's fuel for their bodies as opposed to something that they should fear. And we do not earn the right to eat. You know, we need to eat in order to survive. So making a conscious effort to repeat that message each day and even at each meal. Also, once children are old enough to understand, teaching children that we have you know, three macronutrients, proteins, carbs and fats, and it's important that we eat these every day. And this is because those macros have vital roles in you know, regulating our system and helping us to maintain our energy, our concentration and emotional regulation. When children begin to understand and appreciate that food contains vital nutrients needed for our everyday functioning, children then may begin to develop a better relationship with food and make conscious choices to fuel their bodies in diverse, regular and balanced ways. Yeah, you want to eat a variety of different micronutrients as well, you know, get as many benefits as you can. Definitely. So why is it important not to talk about numbers, calories and dieting with kids? Firstly, seeing food as purely calories can be an issue as it takes the dialogue away from the nutritious value of food and more so on the numbers. Children need to understand that food is much more than calories. It has nutritional value, as highlighted before. And just because a food is high in calories doesn't mean it's not nutritious. Some of the most nutritious foods are high in calories, such as avocados and um, nuts. And diet, dieting can be a problematic word in today's society as well. And when I'm talking about dieting in this context, I'm talking about dietary restriction as well as dietary restraint. So dietary restrictions where that individual reduces the amount of food they eat and or certain foods and food groups. And that individual may also be changing the times they eat and who they eat with. 
dietary restraint is when that repertoire of foods is reduced. So they're reducing the diversity of their food intake. So in other words, they're only eating certain foods or food groups. So eating disorders are often triggered by an individual's dietary restraint or restriction, which then generally brings about weight loss, possibly starvation syndrome, and possibly binging and purging behaviours. And consequently, that individual may lose touch with the foods they love and which energise them, as well as those natural instinctive hunger and fullness signals and their capacity to adopt a more mindful eating approach. So talking about dieting in the home environment may prompt your child to engage in dietary restriction and or restraint or at least become hyper-aware of their food intake. This can set them up for developing a problematic relationship with food, fueled by anxiety around what to eat, when to eat, and how much to eat. And it can also facilitate the development of a relationship with one's body that's very negative and just grounded in dissatisfaction, disconnection, shame, and discomfort. So what are the dangers then of dieting for young children? So as touched on previously, dieting where that child restricts their intake and or certain foods has numerous psychological and physical consequences on their daily functioning and it can lead to the following. So we've got weight loss, low body weight, preoccupation with shape and weight, more intense frequent food and body-related cognitions, stricter food rules that become more narrow and rigid in form So I can't eat that, I can eat that, I can't eat that at that time. Changes in emotional and cognitive functioning, so impaired concentration, heightened anxiety. And young children, they're growing. So inadequate nutritional intake can impede their growth and development in all areas of their body, so muscles, organs, brain health. And for young girls, dieting and low body weight can delay their menstrual cycle or stop it occurring entirely, which can affect fertility levels at present and in the future. So then why shouldn't there be a focus on kids' bodies? Why should you refrain from commenting on children's bodies? Commenting on children's bodies may send the message that the child's self-worth and value is heavily dictated by body weight and shape. And if children adopt this message, they may go to significant lengths to manipulate weight and shape in order to meet, say, unrealistic standards of beauty, such as this really thin ideal in Western society. Their focus may also narrow in that they only see themselves in terms of what they look like. So, in other words, they struggle to see the qualities in them in themselves that are not related to body weight and shape, such as their creativity, their kindness, intellect, their compassion and humour. So if negative comments are made about a child's body, the child may internalise this and develop negative beliefs about their self-image and consequently they may resort to unhelpful behaviours suggesting a negative body image such as dieting, body checking, 
behaviors and body avoidance. So body checking can look like looking in the mirror excessively or in shop windows where they've got that reflection, as well as body avoidance, which looks like avoiding the scales, wearing full-length clothing that covers the body, avoiding mirrors, activities that involve some degree of exposure, such as swimming at the beach, those sorts of things. And all children need to be accepted exactly as they are. Exactly. So why is body shaming then from an adult about their own body damaging for children? Body shaming is defined as speaking negatively and criticising one's body. So, for example, I hate my body or I hate my thighs When we body shame in the presence of our children, we're signaling to them that it is okay for them to also speak about their bodies in a negative way. Our bodies have such an incredible function in that they keep us alive. And and so we need our children to appreciate the important function that their bodies play. And so this can be achieved by inviting this conversation into everyday dialogue around what our bodies allow us to do. Yeah. And if parents say that their bodies aren't okay, then children are more likely to feel that their bodies also aren't okay? Yeah, exactly. So then how can you model healthy relationships with food, nutrients and cooking to create positive memories with children around food? We can achieve this in various ways. So first communicating to children that no food is good or bad. Food's just food. And whilst some foods are more nutritious than other foods, every food should be enjoyed and everything in moderation. So by communicating this message, we're somewhat practicing food neutrality, which is about seeing every food as the same. Okay, which is where we're refraining from attaching values, morals, judgments to food, and we're not using food as like a bribe, reward or punishment. Second, promoting regular eating with your children using what we call the RAVES model. So in therapy, we've touched on the RAVES model of eating, and this model is developed by Sinead Jeffrey, who practices as a dietitian, and RAVES stands for regular, so consistent eating throughout the day, three meals and two to three snacks with the goal of stabilizing blood sugar levels and our energy. The A is for adequacy, which provides for nutritional adequacy, allows for medical stability. So that's filling your plate with carbs, proteins, fats, as well as fiber. These are the macronutrients we touched on before. The V stands for variety. So with all foods being equal, so i.e. food neutrality, the E is for eating out. So having opportunities to enjoy food outside of the home with others. And the S is for spontaneous eating. So allowing flexibility in food thinking and practices. Okay, so being able to eat a certain food if that food was the only food available when you were, say, on a road trip. Okay, so being able to do that, being able to eat foods that say you may not always eat all the time or want to eat, but you know that you somewhat have to because it's it's the only thing there and you're hungry. Third, encouraging your children to cook with you. So teaching them about your favourite meals and the different ingredients that combine to create those meals and having, you know, creating those positive and social memories around food through, say, like taste testing, bake-offs. And lastly, ensuring that mealtimes are free of stress. When mealtimes are stressful, 
eating and food can often be associated with stress through this classical conditioning process. And stress can also work to suppress appetite and interfere with one's natural hunger and fullness cues. So it's, it's, it is best to keep mealtimes relatively stress-free if we can. And if a child is stressed for some reason, implementing some sort of meal distraction may also be helpful, such as inviting their favourite topic into the mealtime conversation, like a TV show, or engaging in or playing a board game or card game in attempts to, to lift the mood. And, and that may also serve as a distraction emotional regulation strategy. So then why is it important to talk about the positive non-physical traits we like about others with children? Because it reiterates to children that humans are so much more than what they look like. It also encourages children to foster positive personality traits that they may have, like kindness, compassion, determination, dedication, as well as skills such as creativity, writing, communication. When working with children who have struggles with body image, we will often ask that child to identify an important person in their life and that child will then discuss what they admire and appreciate about that important person. And usually what they admire about that person is their character, character and personality traits and how that person makes them feel as opposed to what they look like. So this exercise can beneficially reiterate to children that people are generally admired so much more for their skills, their personality and how they make others feel as opposed to what they look like. And it's also about having good life experiences and having fun, you know, experiencing things rather than wondering how you look. Exactly. Because you can make absolutely incredible memories um, doing all sorts of activities. So it all comes down to the, the feeling and the energy it gives you as opposed to, you know, how you're looking on the outside. Exactly. So then why should you reassure a child's emotions and show them that they are loved or supported regardless of their weight? So addressing the first part of that question, validating emotions is an important way to enhance the child's emotional literacy and self-awareness. So here we're educating the child that it is okay to feel the full spectrum of emotions. As human beings, we feel sadness, distress, anger, joy, gratitude, satisfaction. That's a normal part of the human experience. And when we teach our children that they have permission to feel these emotions, they can welcome these emotions with open arms. If children suppress their emotions, these emotions usually become stronger and exacerbate stress. And if children judge themselves for feeling certain emotions, then usually those emotions strengthen too. So when children know that they're loved regardless of body weight and size, it enables children to to fully embrace who they are and their genetic makeup. It teaches them about unconditional love, provides them with a safe haven and a secure base to express emotions and experiences and to nourish, nurture and thrive in their individual bodies. So what if your child already has an eating disorder? What are the next steps to take in treating it? 
So seeking support from a team of medical and mental health professionals. So seeing a GP and paediatrician to conduct a comprehensive medical assessment. Um, second, seeking psychological support alongside ongoing medical checkups to ensure that psychological and physical symptoms are being constantly monitored and contained. The psychologist will administer evidence-based therapy, which seeks to address the maintaining factors for that eating disorder. Things as a parent that you can do from the outset, though, is monitor the language that you use in your house around food and body image. So speaking about food and body image in healthier, more neutral ways, as described above, as well as monitoring your foods, uh, your child's food intake, uh, activity levels and body checking and body avoidance. If we are asking parents to take courage of their child's nutrition, we're doing this because the child is underweight and needs to gain weight. So it is incredibly important that the, the parents are somewhat they're refeeding their child and they're using foods a variety of different foods but a lot of the foods that they are using are high in calories they have that density because those are the foods that's going to that are going to move their child to health so if the parents were somewhat controlling the child's intake it's, it wouldn't be about restricting certain foods because the parents would be guided by the therapist who is working with them to incorporate all the foods, particularly the high-density foods, with the goal, the initial goal of weight restoration. So you may need to, to take courage of preparing food and supervising your child having three meals and three snacks. And that's part of the family-based therapy model that I think we'll touch on a little bit later. So how could you then initially talk to a child if you did have concerns about them restricting their diet? So reiterating that you're always coming from a place of love and that you are concerned and want the best for your child. Uh, These conversations can be tricky, but honesty and directness is usually the best approach. So for example, I noticed you're not eating breakfast. What's going on there? How are you feeling about things at the moment? What can I do to support you? Being curious, being inviting, creating that non-judgmental space where the child feels comfortable to express themselves. If they are uncomfortable to open up at that specific time, then giving them time. However, if you think the child could be medically unstable, it is important to seek medical support as soon as possible. And then depending on what um, the results show of that, then moving to seeing a psychologist as well. Um, is having those ongoing uh, medical appointments to monitor both the physical and psychological symptoms. If your child does have symptoms of an eating disorder, it is important to know that when you do express your concerns to that child, you may encounter distress, resistance, possibly anger, screaming, 
And this is usually seen in the context of anorexia nervosa, given that egocentric nature of the disorder where the restriction of food intake is often giving that child this false sense of control, award and achievement. And the fact that anorexia often thrives off secrecy. So as a therapist, we would be encouraging the parents to externalise the eating disorder when having these conversations. So separating the child from the eating disorder and seeing the child's response as merely the eating disorder acting up. And so in these circumstances, if you are expressing your concerns and the child is having an emotional response, quite a significant elevated emotional response, encouraging the parents to remain as calm as possible in order to avoid exacerbating the eating disorder. Eating disorders thrive off chaos, drama, conflict. So remaining calm is the best way to somewhat stand up to the eating disorder. Onboarding a team of medical and mental health professionals at this stage is very important, particularly when you start to see this behaviour and emotional response because it does it does suggest that there is an eating disorder present and the parents yeah, really need to, to take charge and fight against the eating disorder um, and they can do that with the support of a team of medical and mental health professionals too. Hmm. So then how can you be patient and supportive with a child who may be experiencing an eating disorder to not cause them to withdraw from the relationship completely? As a parent, it's about providing that unconditional love and trusting your gut instincts about what your child needs. Acknowledging that your child may become stressed by your concerns for the reasons outlined above. So be prepared to encounter that resistance and ambivalence, accepting this, validating this, and then remaining as calm as possible. If you start to see a hyper-focus on eating and thoughts around food, body image and exercise, as well as changes in mood, then a medical and psychological professional needs to be onboarded to provide guidance and support to the parents and the child. And action taken within the first three years of the onset of eating disorder symptoms has shown in the research to lead to better clinical outcomes. So do not wait to take appropriate action or until you feel your child is ready. If the eating disorder continues to strengthen, your child may never appear to be ready. So it's about the parents taking taking the first step. And this can be harsh and can sometimes jeopardise the relationship you, you have with your child. But as I said, if there is an eating disorder in the picture, parents need to take charge and work with the professional team to fight against the eating disorder in able to get their child back. But also to note that recovery is a slow process and not linear. Definitely, definitely. It is, it is a, it's a long process often, but extremely worthwhile. And it is one of the hardest things that, that children and their parents go through particularly in the context of anorexia nervosa. Definitely. So then what is family-based therapy and why isn't it important therapy in the treatment of children experiencing an eating disorder? 
So I will speak about family-based therapy in the context of treating anorexia nervosa, okay, which is the eating disorder that we've talked a lot about today, um, which we do see a lot in um, young females and, and males. Uh, and there is an evidence, um, there is evidence for a family approach to treating anorexia nervosa in adolescents who are outpatients and medically stable. Okay, so those individuals are not in a hospital. This approach involves the parents taking charge of meal preparation and supervision to enable increased food consumption and weight restoration. And Morsley-based family therapy, that's what we call it, uh, that's what it's called, is guided by Locke and Lagrange uh, treatment manual which is used by therapists all over the world in this space. And the family um, therapy consists of around 20 sessions over 12 months. Timeframes can obviously differ from family to family. Uh, and it involves three phases. Phase one, where the therapist assists the parents to make, um, not literally to make and supervise all meals, but they therapist sort of guides them in this process process and this is with the goal of facilitating the child's weight restoration so common themes during this phase include strength of the eating disorder containment of eating disorder behaviors sibling support of the child so if there are siblings involved getting the siblings coming to session and supporting the young person with the eating disorder um, as well as themes like parental empowerment and alignment in the refeeding process and the restoration of their child's weight. Phase two is when the therapist works with the child and their parents to facilitate this gradual handing back over responsibility for eating to the child once the child is making significant progress with their weight and showcasing a degree of independence in eating. So before entering this phase, we need the parents to have reported changes in the child's functioning to suggest they are moving towards health. So improvements in mood, energy, concentration, and for girls, possibly their menstrual cycle returning. Phase three is when the child has more of an age-appropriate level of independence at all meals and the weight is fully restored. And therapy would focus more so now on the adolescent individualization. So looking at interpersonal skills, career goals, sexuality, whilst also checking in, obviously, with regards to the strength of the eating disorder, regular eating and body image. Given the medical complications associated with anorexia nervosa, weight restoration takes priority over other symptoms. So although many of anorexia nervosa's psychological effects, such as, you know, food-related cognitions, um, food rules, food and body preoccupation and emotional, emotional distress, those effects actually can at least reduce in intensity with weight restoration. Sometimes they resolve completely. Okay, so if we still find, we find that the child's weight has been restored and those 
psychological effects are still there, that's when we would really turn to those and unpack those. But sometimes they do resolve by themselves with that weight restoration. So that's just a brief overview of Morsi-based family therapy. Um, and whilst there are non there, there are non-negotiables in Morsi-based family therapy, such as the parents being present at every session and having regular medical checkups, the therapist will do their best to accommodate each family and their individual differences, whilst also following the treatment manual and adhering to those non-negotiables. So then what about conflict on the recovery journey? How can you manage conflict within families um, if someone is experiencing an eating disorder or recovering from an eating disorder? It's very challenging when there's conflict in families and an eating disorder present. And we see this a lot in the context of anorexia nervosa. Uh, this eating disorder is particularly known to cause conflict and symptoms of anorexia nervosa can heighten and strengthen in the presence of family contact, uh, conflict as reiterated above. So if I'm working with a family where there is conflict that may involve the child, I would first externalise the eating disorder from the child. Now, I've touched on this before, but I'll go into it a bit in a bit more detail now. When externalising the eating disorder, we are facilitating this process of distinguishing the eating disorder from the child. So we talk about the eating disorder as making the child restrict their food intake as opposed to the child restricting their own food intake. So the eating disorder symptoms occur as a result of the eating disorder taking over their child and forcing their child, child to do such things. So externalising the eating disorder is a concept that parents can take some time to really grasp and it does require some language adjustments. But once they've done this, they do report that externalising can make the parents feel more aligned to their child as they see their child as being separate from the eating disorder. And their parents are, you know, fighting against the eating disorder. So they're doing this to, to basically take the eating disorder down. Now, circling back to family conflict, we know that greater mealtime conflict can exacerbate the eating disorder symptoms. So I will reiterate that remaining as calm as possible is important in order to contain the eating disorder behaviours and to not let them intensify further. I will then direct the parents to think about their own self-care and how they can best manage their emotions and support each other during these difficult times. So this may look like together engaging in effective problem solving, individually grounding themselves to bring awareness to the present moment or taking turns to remove themselves temporarily from the situation if needed in efforts to calm down, recoup and recharge. Mm. So then how can you model a healthy relationship with food and body to children without the presence of an eating disorder? So same ways as discussed above, pr promoting body and food neutrality. So refraining from judging food and ourselves what we eat, as well as refraining from judging our bodies. Eating according, according to the RAVES model, so regular eating, regular meals, adequate intake, having variety, 
eating out and spontaneous eating and engaging in self-compassionate dialogue um, is another important uh, thing to do. Um, this is in the context of food and, and body particularly. So, for example, I can enjoy all the foods in moderate amounts um, and when referring to body, saying to ourselves, my body enables me to work, to exercise, to love, to go out with my friends, those things like that. So thank you so much, Harriet, for this episode. It is invaluable. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's the end of today's episode. Please subscribe, leave us a comment or a review. If you would also like to learn more about Body Matters services, you can check out our website at bodymatters.com.au. Thanks for listening.